Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Max. I've got a uh, podcast recommendation for you. It's called The World As You'll Know It. And you should check it out. Here's a couple of reasons why. One, it's short. It's only five episodes. It's running uh, right now. It finishes before the election. And two, the conversations are just fascinating. Here's what the show is about. It's about what this moment, what COVID is going to mean long term for some of the biggest issues facing us. So climate change, the economy, and the format of the show is really interesting. They take journalists uh, David Wallace Wells, who's been on long form, who covers climate change, hosts the first episode, and the journalist interviews an expert in that field. So David interviewed Christiana Figueres, who is the architect of the Paris Accord. And the two of them talk about what this moment is going to mean for climate change. It's only five episodes. It's running now through Election Day. The show is called The World As You'll Know It. Go check it out. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show, which starts right now. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. On the Zoom line, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Max. Hey, you guys. Aaron, who is on the uh, podcast this week? Someone who's been on the show before, although it was a live episode. I feel like that's kind of on its own track. So this is his first in-studio appearance, Reeves Weideman. Uh, He has written for a long time for New York Magazine, tons of features that I have really enjoyed. I think the most famous one is probably uh, The Watcher, which is this super creepy haunted housey story he wrote about this house in New Jersey. But he's also done a lot of covering of uh, the media industry itself. He's written about Condé Nast. He's written about Vice. He's written about startup culture and has a new book out about WeWork, building on his reporting from New York Magazine on WeWork. It's called Billion Dollar Loser, and it uh, contains some of the most bizarre and hilarious uh, anecdotes about the rise and fall of WeWork that you can imagine. I feel like um, Reeves is getting to that point now where like, when Reeves calls you uh, about a story he's working on, that's like a bad sign. That was kind of where we started uh, in talking. And unsurprisingly, he is you know, uh, continuing to cover a lot of media companies in New York. I think the next one 
is the New York Times. I'm not sure whether he was supposed to be open with that or not, but uh, it came up. So uh, yeah, it's definitely interesting uh, to be in his shoes as he puts one of these together, uh, surrounded by many of the people who the stories are about, many of whom have been on the show. <laughs> Don't take that Reeves call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a thing you should do is send an email newsletter. And if you're going to do it, do it with MailChimp. It's the best way to send an email newsletter, Aaron. They scale up as you scale up. So you're not paying for a bunch of uh, stuff you don't need until your list is huge and a thriving business or whatever it becomes. Thanks, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Reeves Weideman. Hello, Reeves Weideman. Hi, Aaron. I catch you on the morning your book is getting released. Uh, it is. It's a it's a rainy, gray day in Brooklyn. Um, I would I would have to say it's an ominous. Day. It's the weather does not uh, scream hit. It, yeah, it doesn't scream success. Um, but I'm ever hopeful. So we'll see how the rest of the day goes. Well, the good news is that uh, I interviewed you on the show once before uh, in front of a student audience. Uh, so we can just, uh, we can relax and hang out. Anyone who wants to know more about the, uh, Weideman backstory, it's out there. Of course, during that interview, I couldn't ask you, you know, about your, your blue material, your, uh, uh more R rated stuff. Cause we were at an all ages audience. Right. Exactly. Anything is fair game today. The thing I kind of wanted to start talking to you about actually is, is not the book itself, but, sure. uh, at some point in your life, possibly unwittingly, you became a pretty prolific, deep follower of, I think, all New York City media companies. Yeah. I went back through your archive. You're in about Rap Genius, uh, mm -hmm. I think now just Genius, uh, Vice, mm -hmm. Condé Nast, and uh, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but uh, I have heard that you're uh, preparing some pretty major reporting about the New York Times. Um, I can't confirm or deny <laughs> any stories that may or may not be in the works, but it's safe to say that whenever I start reporting about a media company, it does not stay secret for very long. So well, that was one of the things that I've sort of wondered about is like you are part of a social world mm -hmm. that involves many people who work at these companies you've covered. I mean, with the amount of, um, people changing jobs that is typical now. The chances someone who works in the New York uh, City media worked at one of those companies, mm -hmm. very high. It's gotta be like 50-50. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's true, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got the younger demographic at Vice, you've got the, the old school at Condé Nast, and, and, and some of them have been at both. Is this weird, like how much of the like media energy goes to covering other New York City media companies. I will just eat it up forever. Like I ate your book up forever. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be entertaining to me. But like, I guess, how do you think about the like audience outside of the people who know some of the people in the story? Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, a, cu a couple of thoughts come to mind. You know, when I was reporting on Condé Nast last year, about a year ago, um, you know, I was talking. Uh, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, and I was I was home um, visiting at the time, and was just talking to some high school friends. 
and was telling them what I was working on, and they had no idea what Condé Nast was. I mean, they might they, they obviously knew some of the magazines which, once I was talking about it, but but they didn't they certainly didn't care. Um, and it's definitely with these stories, you know, it, it's it's a little bit navel gazy. I, I mean, in in talking about the New York Times, you know. I, I was talking to someone recently who told me, you know, it's a, it's a very intentional strategy on their part to have a number of media reporters. One thing they've done as they've grown is um, is actually just hire more so that the rest of the media looks at the Times as the place that covers the media. So there is this way in which kind of it's a small circle that cares about this. Of course, um, it is it is an influential circle. And so, you know, taking a look at the way these companies works does have a broader application. But at the end of the day, you are in many ways kind of writing for uh, your friends and colleagues and, and neighbors. I, I think that there's a, f- a flip side to that that I, I picked up on in your book, which is in some ways this reporting is kind of demystifying about how all this stuff works. Yeah. Like nothing can be more clear in the like we work story than like this is a a very intimate confidence game being played by a small number of founders and a small number of investors. And that's true whether you're going to Silicon Valley or New York, cultural differences, but like what looks like this massive edifice is really taking place. You know, there's like four or five key meetings that produce this whole elaborate piece of theater. Yeah. And I mean, beyond, just doing sort of media reporting, I've done a lot more corporate reporting than I was doing kind of early in my career, whether that's Condé Nast or, or WeWork. And, you know, the, you, you get inside these companies and and I think, you know, if you're not in the business world, you sort of assume like a- everything is running based on models and numbers. And then you get inside and it's just people. And, and sometimes they have MBAs and sometimes they don't. And, and sometimes the MBAs don't even mean all that much. And at the end of the day, like whether you're running a media company or an office based company, um, it's all people making these decisions. And they often do very strange, contradictory um, and ultimately unsuccessful things. So. I'm interested in the process. Like you've been doing this long enough that you've actually been able to uh, see these stories evolve, right? Like Mm -hmm. the WeWork story is not in the same place it was when you first started covering it. None of these stories are. You've actually gotten to see like sort of the the brash performance and uh, the strange uh, collapsing echo behind a lot of these companies. How does your reporting develop? How is your reporting different in month one and more than a year in? What uh, layers of the onion peel back? Well, it's just you've reminded me of a funny story, which reporting on on Condé Nast, um, you know, the way I did that was just you. Yeah, you start with the outer layer, which in that case, you know, I worked there um, at one point. I I have friends uh, who work at the company and that story sort of started with me just kind of uh, over beers or, you know, casual conversations, just kind of trying to figure out sort of what was going on. And and surprisingly quickly, although maybe not surprising in hindsight, uh, I hadn't even really started reporting the story. It was sort of just in that stage of like talking to, to friends. And the head of Condé Nast PR reached out to me and said, I hear you're reporting on the company. And this was sort of even kind of months before we we had even really decided to sort of dig into it. So 
that's how all these stories start is you kind of start at the outer layer and a lot of these companies are, are big enough now, especially a lot of these kind of high growth startups where I just know people and it may not be people I've even talked to in years. It's, it's um, you know, college classmates. It's uh, people I, I just have sort of casual connections with or acquaintances. And you kind of start there, at least that's the way I've, I've found to kind of like get a sense of sort of what's going on and what's interesting before you kind of really dig in. I don't want to like blow up your spot here, but I'm just going to like take the example you had of reporting on Condé Nast. Sure. Like the person who's doing PR at Condé Nast probably knows which Condé Nast employees you know. <laughs> like it wouldn't be that hard for just me to look at your social network and world, how old you are and be like, I don't know for sure, but I'm looking at the four of you as potentially people who are talking to Reeves. Is that a consideration in, in whether people talk to you? And, um, you know, what do you do to protect sources when those sources are very close to you and often do the same job as you possibly were your colleagues previously? Yeah, I, I think using friends as a source is is complicated in in all kinds of ways beyond just professional ones i mean you know uh, I, I i don't want to burn any sources but i certainly don't want to burn a friend so you know usually it's like sort of that group of people who are, are kind of a gut check when you're you're starting to report and you know the good news about reporting on a place like Condé Nast is, um, yeah, you. I'm sure that the PR team was able to guess who who the people I was talking to, but ultimately we talked to you know more than a hundred people. And, and the good news about reporting about that kind of company in particular is it is not hard really to get people to gossip about their workplaces, especially uh, at a company like that. What was the most challenging company to report on that you, that you've ever tried to cover? Probably WeWork. And I say that, you know, it didn't have sort of the personal complications that reporting on Condé Nast or, or a media company did. But, you know, when I started reporting about the company, they were on the rise. Um, it was sort of the spring of 2019. They hadn't even announced their IPO yet. They were worth $47 billion. You know, so on the one hand, they were, they were sort of accommodating um, because up to that point, a lot of the press had been pretty favorable. You know, if you go back and look at the coverage of the company, there are obviously exceptions. I think the Wall Street Journal did especially good coverage, Bloomberg as well. But, you know, you have a lot of places that sort of buy into the narrative of the company. And so so WeWork took a, a strategy of sort of opening the door a little bit. But then, you know, the moment you sort of come to them with, with anything kind of critical, it was a pretty tooth and nail fight uh, with them, you know, objecting to kind of everything we were planning to report um, as, as we sort of went through the fact checking process. So, you know, Vice, Vice was similar in a certain way. Um, and certainly those kinds of companies are, I think, in some ways more difficult because when they're on the way up, you know, they're very protective of the narrative that, that surrounds the company, because in a lot of ways, that's kind of what's what's driving a lot of their success. There's something like someone uh, said about like fact checking, like uh, I think this was maybe said in relation to the Jason Blair uh, scandal, mm -hmm. which is that like fact checking isn't really meant to catch someone who is uh, strategically and blatantly lying. It's meant mm -hmm. to catch someone who's screwed up, maybe fudged the truth, conflated something. Mm -hmm. We work feels a little like the liar talking to the fact checker where there's actually like a pretty organized 
deception going on within the company. It's not a purely a spin. Like, I don't know what your experience with these media companies are, but my experience is that like most people in journalism are not willing to like outright lie or see that as a pretty big liability to end Mm -hmm. up in a Jason Blair situation. Mm -hmm. Adam Neumann does not seem like uh, he has that same uh, outlook. I think that's probably fair to say. And, you know, when you get into these fact checking situations, you know, you're dealing with the communications team and at any of these startups now it's it's a team it's it's multiple people and and they're pushing back and and they're you know they are taking sort of their cues in in certain ways from the leadership which was in this case Adam Newman and and they were pushing back on everything you know they were pushing back on we were reporting uh how many days a year he typically went surfing which wasn't a detail we like particularly cared about or, or, or anything that salacious, although he did do a lot of surfing. Um, but they pushed back on that. And I, I remember them saying, you know, we have his calendar and, and you know, I'm making up this number, but we were going to say it was it was more than 100 days. And, and, and they said, you know, we have this calendar and it says he was surfing 37 days last year and that and that was it. And, you know, I don't have that calendar and they're not going to hand it over to me. And so you do have to be confident in, in what you know. And I think, you know, that's a lot of the battle is being as, as sure about these things as you can when you get into these these sort of fact-checking battles so that on something like how many days you went surfing, you can maybe give on that if you don't feel totally confident in it, but then that you're, you're feeling much better about the things that you really care about and that are important to the story. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running 
helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong, and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. (laughs) I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. What are you looking for when you start looking into a company? Are you looking for like an overall theme to tie the narrative together? I was I was trying to figure out what like the theme of Billion Dollar Loser is. Well, the theme of Billion Dollar Loser, I think, is sort of looking at this company in particular, WeWork, but also sort of the era of of kind of startup mania, which which I think defined a lot of the 2010s and a lot of the companies I wrote about. There are so many overlapping similarities between WeWork, between Vice Media, between Uber. You know, Uber was sort of the first of those companies I wrote about. And, and I remember thinking about it at the time, but but eventually you sort of recognize this pattern where it's like these companies run into different versions of the same problem, which is they get a bunch of money. They do one thing well, whether it's taxi service or <clears throat> making cool documentaries or building out office space, uh, but then they get all this money and they decide to grow as fast as they can in that business and then expand into everything else. So so I think that, you know, the theme we were looking for in in this book was to kind of explore sort of why that happens. When you started the book, like, what did you feel like you needed to know about WeWork that you didn't yet know? What were the lingering hidden Easter eggs that you feel like you needed to capture to be able to tell the story? Well, when we started out reporting on it, when I was reporting for New York Magazine, it was the spring of 2019 and WeWork was growing. And and frankly, like kind of the reason we wanted to do it was our office at the time was in Soho and there were suddenly half a dozen WeWorks within a few blocks. So it really was a like, we saw this as kind of a New York real estate story. Mm. How is this company growing so fast, you know, is it is it real? Like we'd, we'd seen enough of these companies struggle that that we knew enough to be a, a little bit skeptical. And we didn't go into it necessarily thinking that that Adam Newman was was I mean, he, he was obviously going to be sort of the central character as the CEO. And and we knew there were some sort of unusual things about him. But it really wasn't until, you know, I got a few weeks into reporting where just talking to people, you know, both who were still at the company and and in, in that case, it was obviously a lot easier while the company was on the rise to, to get people who had left to, to talk to me. It was just clear that Adam was at the center of everything. He was at the center of sort of both the reasons the company had been successful and grown so much. And then, you know, we didn't know how serious the problems were at the time, but it, it was clear that a lot of the ways in which the company seemed to be potentially in danger um, also sort of stemmed from him. So, you know, I, I, I think that was sort of the the journey there was was from kind of writing about a company to eventually an article that my editors came up with a headline for um, the I and we. Um, And it was just, you know, it was it was about Adam as much as it was about the company. When you have a character like Adam, who is just 
from an anecdotal level, an mm-hmm. embarrassment of riches. Mm-hmm. Um, a person who almost every day does something that would be a great detail in capturing who he is in a book. Just uh, they're endless yeah. in, in this story. In some ways, the not wearing shoes on the street in New York City is one pretty of tame. The, yeah, it's pretty tame. It, it, it gets wilder from there. Um, yeah. How do you pick and choose amongst those and not simply just want to rely on the holy shitness all yeah. the time as a way to, to keep your story moving. Yeah, I I struggle with that a lot because, you know, I, I think the fun part of, of these stories are the stories about the people. And and I think, you know, it became, it became clear and it's become clear to me the more I've done kind of reporting on these companies that, you know, the interesting parts are about the people and, and the different, you know, they're sort of different characters at, at each place. And and Weirik, I think, had a, had a pretty exceptional amount. And, and Adam is an extraordinary character um you can the story can get weighed down a little bit i mean i think you know there got to a certain point in in trying to write the book where where we sort of i I think my my patience had run even a little thin of of you know and then everyone took tequila shots uh (laughs) like that's that's only so interesting and eye rolly uh so many times and and i think you know eventually you you want to give readers more than that and you want to kind of I, i think the key is to try to pick and choose your anecdotes to to tell, you know, to make a different point. I think people, especially in, in WeWork, get, get caught up a lot in, oh, it was just a, a big party and drugs and tequila and all that. And and there was plenty of that. But like that was only one part of the story. And I think it's it's as much trying to figure out how those things connect and and what are the the sort of crazy stories that um, that connect to the points you're trying to make. When you're writing, and this this could apply to rework, but it really could apply to Condé Nast or anyone else. Mm-hmm. When you're writing about events that are so public and messy, and so many people already know about them and have reported on them, like, mm-hmm. are you concerned about getting something new, getting something that someone else doesn't have? Like, how much are you trying to be a definitive account of this versus yeah. just? entertain someone who buys this book at an airport bookstore. I, I think about that a lot, especially in, in the reporting uh, that I do for New York Magazine as well. Like, you know, I'm, I'm often coming into stories after, you know, other reporters have, have been, you know, working on it. And that was certainly the case with, with WeWork. And it, it is the case that there will be more books um, about WeWork and, and sort of uh, that was another th- sort of thing in my mind. And I don't worry too much about exclusives or, or scoops or whatnot. Um, I often think, especially kind of writing for a general audience as opposed to sort of a business specific audience, a lot of the readers don't know the, the basics of the story. And, you know, it's, it's, it's always interesting to me as I, I'll kind of recount to people stories that are sort of well known <laughs> to, to me at this point and have been written about before. Um, you know, as one example, uh, Masayoshi San, the head of SoftBank, decided to invest in WeWork, uh, invest $4 billion after a half an hour meeting. And that story has been covered over and over, but but you can't ignore it when you're writing this account. So, you know, I, I think for better or worse, we, we think about it, you know, when we're working on magazine stories where you do kind of want a few moments that are sort of uh, especially tweetable, I guess, um, that, that people will just kind of grab onto to sort of spread the word about the story. But but I'm much more interested in making sure the anecdotes all sort of fit together 
um, into telling something a bit more cohesive and, and meaningful in the long run. You've worked at New York Magazine for a pretty long time. Like half a decade. So I, half I a guess decade. In, wow. in modern media, that is a very long time. You're ancient yeah. in New York Magazine. Yeah. And I always wonder how it feels like, like I wonder how it feels for the people who work at Vice mm. when you write your kind of, oh, everything's fucked over at Vice. They like miss their window story. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, like I don't know the details because I haven't actually read a feature about it. But my understanding is that there's been financial turmoil at New York Magazine sure. over the last year. There's been reorganization, acquisition, restructuring, all of these things like how does it feel to sort of uh, read the same kind of reporting about your own house? Yeah, well, I, I remember with, with Vice in particular, talking about and talking to my editors about, you know, we don't want to be casting aspersions that could be put back on us and making critiques that, that are just, you know, kind of general critiques of along the lines of it's really hard to run a media business these days. Yeah. And, and I think that is a tricky line to sort of toe of making sure that the critiques are not just kind of general and, and can be thrown back in, in your face. And of course, like, you know, I think at, at New York Magazine, we have to have kind of tough skin. And, and if we're going to go out and write these stories, we have to at least expect that people um, are going to write them about us. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make, you know, make it any easier. And, and I think people get plenty um, upset when, you know, we read things about ourselves that we don't don't like, but um, I guess it should hopefully inspire us to at least make the stories we write about others as accurate as can be. Have you been following this whole uh, Cambridge Analytica story recently? I, I, I don't know if I followed this sort of recent. I had to finish a book. Yeah, and... I know. I understand. I was wondering if because in some <laughs> ways Cambridge Analytica has been revealed a little bit to be kind of a we work that was like mm. selling a big game of nefarious tools. And that story was extremely juicy and was uh, bid on repeatedly mm -hmm. by, by the American media. And now it turns out that they were like, you know, an emperor with no clothes and their technology didn't really mm -hmm. do anything and probably mm -hmm. didn't influence any elections because much like uh, some of the Wii products, it was basically vaporware. Yeah. And huh. these seem to be the narratives we yearn for. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of like what people want out of these stories versus like, do you ever find things that sort of contradict that? Or you feel like, like even in this story, it's like, it's funny that WeWork has talked about a, as a failing of the tech industry when like Adam right. Newman, I think at one point is described as not liking to use a computer. Yes. It's become a very sort of broad cultural idea, more so than <laughs> yeah. maybe a narrow business idea, this idea of these goddamn tech companies. Well, it, it's sort of uh, a double-edged sword for WeWork where, where, yes, Adam didn't really use a computer, but he very much wanted the company to be considered a tech company. Um, right. Silicon Valley investors, tech investors were invested in the company and, and certainly all of the group of people was was interested in making the world think that WeWork was, if not a tech company, exactly at least tech adjacent. And I think calling out those kind of hypocrisies is is obviously something that that people want, and and it's frankly I think almost too easy to do. And there's a way in which Adam, especially, you know, he really he's become a caricature. He's become this 
sort of, you know, goofy guy with long hair who partied a lot and kind of said crazy things. But he also was extremely successful for a long time. And, and there were parts of his personality, his charisma, most notably, and his ability to make a pitch that are, are crucial to any business person and, and successful entrepreneur. So what I hope comes through in the book is like, and again, it has been hard to kind of talk to people about it because I think they do just want to see someone get their comeuppance. Mm. Um, there's parts of this story where, where Adam was very successful. I think we mentioned towards the end of the book, there was one venture capitalist, Ben Horowitz, who, who was sort of telling new founders that he was meeting um, and interviewing about potentially investing in their company. He was asking them about WeWork and, and what they thought of Adam. And the answer he wanted was, was not, you know, this is a Ponzi scheme or a scam or, or the things, the phrases people like to throw out there, but, but to try to actually figure out like, why did this work for so long? And then why, why did it go wrong um, so badly at the end? I spent an unfortunately long period of my life, including the present, uh, overly interested in cryptocurrencies. And, you know, there was this uh, boom in, in shitcoin ICOs. And it basically became clear that it was much easier to fake that you were going to do something than to actually do it. Like the the difference in the, uh, the valuation of a coin that actually uh, did something versus someone who had just sort of put together a bunch of buzzwords. Uh, the buzzwords always won in a, a head-to-head test. And I assume that that's sort of what the response to Ben Horowitz would be, was like, this is actually like an integral part to yep. success. Like you have to be able to sell it. It would be helpful if you were able to sell it and then it actually worked. But the, <laughs> the selling it is the precondition to all of it. Yeah, and I, I think if you look at WeWork, the branding was great. I mean, for, for a long time, you know, especially living in New York or San Francisco, WeWork was like the cool place to work and, and the branding was good. And in a lot of ways, the product was good. You know, everyone can complain about their offices and we all in many ways wish we were back in any kind of office, but the offices were, were pretty good. And, and I think where things went off the rails is, is the branding became disconnected from the reality of the company. By early 2019, WeWork was in the business of, as their mission statement said, uh, elevating the world's consciousness. And so it went from this idea of just like, we're making cool, great office space to make your day at work better, to this kind of big grand idea that frankly, no one even within the company really knew what it, what it meant. And so, you know, suddenly that kind of divorces you from from the reality of what you're actually doing. And then, you know, I think that was one factor among among others that kind of led to the, the company's downfall. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is like a, a grand irony to all of this, that if WeWork had been profitable and had actually worked, uh, it was still going to get steamrolled by the pandemic yeah. in, in exactly the same way. Like I'm um, doing this totally legit and above board probably would have produced the same outcome now? It's possible. I mean, you know, they're in a tricky situation now where a trickier situation where, um, you know, they're only theoretically worth $3 billion after SoftBank itself has invested more than $10 billion into the company. So they have a very long way to go towards fulfilling anything close to what the backers of the company want now. But yes, there is a certain irony to the notion that 
you know, maybe Adam got out just in time. He does not have his billion dollar uh, payout um, that he was supposed to get from SoftBank at the end of last year. It's tied up with, with lawyers at the moment and sort of remains to be seen what exactly is going to happen. But in another respect, um, not running a real estate company right now is, is not the worst position for him to find himself in. You did a story several years ago called The Watcher. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if we talked about it the last time you were on the podcast, if it was out or not yet. I think I was working on it, if I, if I remember. So we probably didn't. So like the story is basically about this couple moves into a house. New Jersey? New Jersey. Westfield, New Jersey. Westfield, New Jersey. Starts getting notes from someone who basically tells them to leave the house that they, I, I won't go into all, to all of the details. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't read the story, just go read the story right now. Uh, it has continually freaked me out ever since I read it. But at the end of your reporting process, did you have a like, well, this is what I think happened. I can't like prove it in the story. Yeah, I, I had a sort of working theory. Um, and the one I will dismiss out of hand is, is uh, which is, is everyone's favorite conspiracy theory, is that the family itself was sending the letters for some convoluted reason that, that no one has ever been, been able to explain to me. That one I don't buy. Um, I, I, I have a, a, a suspicion, but I haven't been able to prove it. So you'll have to have me on again once we get to the, the bottom of it. Well, like, what was it like constructing a m- open-ended mystery story of that kind? Mm-hmm. Did you always know, oh, it's going to end ambiguously? How did you conceive of, of that story as you went into it? Well, we set out to solve it. You know, that was that was the, <laughs> the goal. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I think in, in its earliest days, it was kind of a, a story about just a, a strange thing that happened to a, a small town. And so if we couldn't get to the bottom of it, that's that's what it would be. And then, you know, it took it took a long time to get uh, the family um, who, who received the letters to to agree to kind of tell their story. You know, they had already been kind of bludgeoned by by media attention when the letters first were, were made public. And, and once we were able to kind of convince them that that it would be worth sort of telling their side of things, then I think it became as much about this family and, and everything they had been through and kind of you know, I, I think what made the story appealing for people is in part, um, what would you do? Like, what would you do if this happened to you, if you bought a house and suddenly you started getting creepy letters? And, uh, you know, in some ways it was sort of a sort of choose your own adventure story as as people read it. And I think that was kind of how we thought about it, of, of just sort of taking readers through this like crazy situation and seeing seeing how this family reacted to it. You sold the rights to the story for a uh, a narrative production. Uh, yeah, with with New York Magazine, um, Netflix bought the rights. Um, there is a, I believe, a a series in some very early state of production, and we'll we'll see sort of where that goes. In the five years you've been uh, doing features for New York Magazine, you've done a lot of stories. You've been working at a like very uh, steady and pretty ambitious clip. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit like about your story generation process, how you're moving all of these things along at once, how you split your focus. Are you basically, is this like your max output or are you <laughs> pitching even more stories than this that don't happen? I'm pitching a lot of bad stories. 
bad really? ideas that don't happen. I mean, this is where I will I will give credit to others. Um, and, and I think one of the secrets of, of success of a place like New York Magazine um, is the editors and, and just the sort of brain trust of people. And that's in some ways, that's that's the sort of senior editors at the magazine. But it's also just the number of smart people working at the place, you know, from copy editors to web producers to writers for the strategist who come up with these things. And, and frankly, it was it was the editor of the strategist who suggested the watcher. You know, I, I think that's that's actually sort of the, the key to all this. And, and I wish I could say that I constantly am coming up with great ideas. But um, the reality is that it's it's the editors. And this is me sucking up to my bosses. But <laughs> almost all of the stories I've enjoyed reporting most are, are ones that they've come up with and then um, given me the chance to go figure out what's actually happening. Give me a flavor of your bad ideas. Like what is the Mm. common thread among stories that you want to do that don't actually become stories? I think oftentimes I will find a person in an interesting situation, but it's not clear what the point of the story is. And and honestly, I'm not going to tell you the person's name because I still kind of want to do this, but but there's there's a story about someone who I've, I've sort of looked into recently is in kind of a sort of oddball situation and they just have a great name. And I was talking to a friend about, you know, it'd be fun to like write a story where you just get to sort of deploy this, this person's name throughout. So the trouble was when I brought it to my editor, it was sort of like, well, what's, what's the point? Especially now, I think it's kind of hard to do these kind of goofy off the wall stories when, when everything is so, so dark and serious. But I think that's sort of a, a through line in, in kind of the stories I, I want to do is there's all kinds of people who find themselves in, in interesting situations and it's trying to figure out sort of what the, the broader, you know, lesson in some cases or just reason to get, get people to, to read it beyond it just being, a, you know, a good story, which in some cases is enough, but in other cases you kind of need, need some heft behind it. Reeves, thank you so much. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me here. That was the Longform Podcast. Thanks to Reeves. Thanks to our editor this week, Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our intern, Susan Peterson. Of course, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, if you ever wondered what Longform is other than this podcast, it's a website. You can find it at longform.org. It recommends all kinds of great nonfiction every day of the year. So uh, check that out. Review and rate us on iTunes if you're a pure podcast person. We uh, always can use the support. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. 
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. 